Hi, guys. This is the Liberty Librarian. This is your host, Heather Biederman. It's wonderful to be back again on this third show. Um, thank you very much to Chris Levels from the show previous to us, uh, Politics and Prophecy. I really appreciate the shout-out. Thanks. And it is great to be back. I just had a crazy weekend. I wanted to tell you all about it. Uh, this weekend we had the Libertarian Party of Minnesota State Convention, and I had the honor of presenting there with my good friend and co-editor, Genesis Mickle. And we had a great session where we got to talk about uh, basically the Agorist Writers Workshop, and we had a really great turnout there. It was a lot of fun. We had people very interested in figuring out how to do liberty writing and... Uh, you know, some people had never been published before. So one of my dreams for everyone is if you have this, have a story in you and you, you want to get, you know, a first experience, like if you've never been published before and you're interested in liberty and freedom themes, it's a great anthology. And it was my first time of being published when I was on that as well. Um, what I really enjoy about it was getting to have people come in and ask questions about how the process works. People who've never written before, you know, they they get a little scared. They think, well, you know, I'm not a professional author. Well, how do you think professional authors get started, right? They have to start somewhere. And if you have great ideas for a story, uh, I know the show previous on politics and prophecy about religion and spirituality, any of you listeners who are hanging in around just to see what it's all about, to, um, our next anthology for the Clarion Call is about religion and spirituality. So we're looking for short stories. Short stories are usually between about 1,000 to 8,000 words. So the the submission deadline is June 1st. And, you know, like that's a one month away. You can do it. If you write for about, I don't know, 15, 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes is a good amount of time. You do that, you can you can get a short story done. All you need to do is start brainstorming today. Brainstorm today, you know, get an idea in your head. Maybe you just think about it before you go to bed. Am I, I'm going to dream about the story, and it has to have a liberty theme, but it's about religion and spirituality. You wake up. You might have that idea and start writing down, you know, just the basic bones of your plot. Start putting that in. Start figuring out what your main character is about. What What's a way to bring them to life? And get a story arc together. You know, you got to have things happen. You have your your main plot, rising action. You you have your climax of the story, your your falling action, and a conclusion. And it all has to be in the short story. I mean, you don't, you can, it can be a part of a bigger novel that you may be wanting to write someday. But the stuff that you have for us, your short story needs to have something happen within it. So it might be a smaller chapter thing that where something happens. And, you know, we had some great conversations in our session about ideas people are having. And, you know, it, it can be, any kind of spirituality, any kind of religion, you know, we're we're really excited to see what we can get. So I really hope you consider it. I have some notes. If anyone's interested, go to my Facebook page, Liberty Librarian, and send me a note, 
and we can talk about it. We can see about ways to get your story published. What was really cool in our session was we had people who were so excited about it, they they volunteered. Um, one beautiful lady volunteered to be one of our judges for the next one, and her husband volunteered to be um, starting to write. And he is just so excited about the possibility of getting published. Now, just because you submit doesn't guarantee that you're going to get it, but you know, if you don't submit anything, you're not going to get published at all in our anthology. So you have one month. I want to see at least some of you submit something. It's very exciting, and we're very into um, supporting liberty ideas and you know, getting like new concepts out there for people. It's a really good way of reaching out to people who may not have ever really even thought about liberty topics before and in a fun way because they're stories. So if you're passionate about that and religion, they can come together. So and if you have questions about it, send it to me on Facebook and we can talk. So I'm very excited about that. And also at this convention, which is every year, it's an annual convention. It's uh, up in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Um, if you're not from Minnesota, there, you check around and see if your state has one. They're, they get some great speakers. Um, it's wonderful to get to meet people. And every time we have just a blast. Um, you know, one of the things I think was really interesting is I sat in on a, a marijuana panel where they talked about marijuana activist groups, and they had they're really trying to work together, especially in Minnesota, to repeal the cannabis prohibition laws. And I think that it's it's coming a long way, and I think they're getting way closer than they've ever been, and I think it can happen. I'm really excited for that. Um, they had. Uh, Bridging the Gap from the Prison to the Workforce for an Out-of-Work Offender. That was really cool. Um, there's ballot access inclusiveness bills. Uh, you know, in a lot of states, it's almost impossible to get, uh, like, you have to get enough signatures if you're a libertarian or an independent party. Um, and it's almost impossible in some states, including Minnesota, to get people on the on the ballot. So... I think that's one of the things that we have to work on in a lot of states. Some states are better than others. Minnesota is pretty bad. So I'm glad to see people working hard to make that happen. They had someone about self-defense. They had um, some political directors for Minnesota gun owners. And so, I mean, it's like every kind of interest. So we had the writers like us. We had people that talked about uh, getting on city council, like my friend Kara Schultz. She uh, had a great speech about um, the opioid crisis, and I just think the work that she's doing is really bringing it to attention to a lot of uh, people who originally thought anyone who might be using an opioid is just a druggie. You know, that's what people they say that and like, oh yeah, we got to get rid of opioids. Except that there are a lot of people with chronic illnesses that depend on them to have normal, regular functioning lives. Um, if if you are ever suffered from chronic illness, it, it is not an addiction kind of situation. It is just to be able to live. And a lot of uh, people who are suffering from this um, had it, so it is impossible to get the drugs that they need to function, and some people are committing suicide because they're in so much pain and they don't see any options. So people need to really rethink that, that stance, 
that uh, has, the way it's been going. And I've noticed that um, the main media is really changing their viewpoints. I'm, I'm really proud of the work that she's done. And um, she's a city council member in Burnsville. So people are listening to her. So we need more people like her to be in office so that way we can get uh, different viewpoints in front of people, um, ways of making freedom happen more, getting rid of unreasonable rules and laws. So I am very proud that I know more and more people are, are running for office and just getting to go to this convention, you get to meet so many people who've made it happen. So it really inspires you. And I, I think about, you know, we, we try to inspire people to write and I think conventions like this inspire people to go, yeah, I want to make things happen in my own community. So I, I'm just amazed by that. Um, one of the people that I got to listen to talk on the librarian side of things uh, was Twyla Brass. I think that's how you say her last name. She's from Minnesota. And she wrote a great new book about um, electronic health records. Uh, grab that right now. She, her book, it's uh, it opens your eyes. Oh, it's called Big Brother in the Exam Room. And what's kind of amazing about this was that it's an award-winning book, and there are serious dangers lurking behind the government's thirty billion dollars electronic health record experiment. They're um, using the data and um, taking attention from patients to the paperwork patients who think the HIPAA privacy rules protects the confidentiality of their personal information will be shocked to discover it makes your medical records an open book. And this is an amazing book. I'm getting it for our library here, and I think uh, librarians and people who work in the medical industry should definitely take a look. It talks about how Congress, Congress forced doctors to install a surveillance system in the exam room. Can you believe that? an impact of EHRS, EHRs on patient care, costs, patient safety, and more, according to doctors in more, in more than 125 studies, how patient treatment decisions are controlled and tracked by the EHR, what specific steps back to freedom, privacy, and patient safety are available, and why we must act now. It's essential reading. Her website is... Uh, cchfreedom.org and she has some great information on that website. I'd love to have her on our show. It was um, just amazing. She has the big brother in the exam room.com for her book. So if you want to read more about that, it's available also on Amazon. And she has a Facebook page as well, CCH Freedom. So Twyla, it's just an amazing person and she's um, a co-founder of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, that's CCHF, and voted number 75 on Modern Healthcare's 2009 list of the 100 most powerful people in healthcare. So just someone to watch. And if you are a librarian like me or someone who's a reader, I think it's a book that you will definitely want to check out. Um, one of the things that she mentioned in her presentation was Citizens cannot receive Social Security benefits if they refuse Medicare Part A hospitalization. This is not a law or a rule. Without congressional authority, the Social Security Administration added this restriction to the Program Operation Manual System, POMS, in 1993. So she had 
a petition to fill out. And you can find us, I think there's a link on the Citizens Council for Health Freedom website. And go there, and it's, it's actually pretty important because it's a violation of the Constitution. And I don't know, my parents um, are retired, and I think about all the retired people using Medicare, and it is amazing to see all the privacy issues that are coming up because of some of these rules. So definitely, definitely please take a look at that. Look at signing that petition. Um, I think the book is amazing looking, and I can't wait to read it all. It's definitely going to be something that our nursing students at the college I work at should look at because um, we're taking for granted that privacy is going to be um, crossed. People's lives could be really affected by this. And how safe is it? I, I mean, like we'd hope that the hospitals are protecting our data, but um, I think you should have rights to privacy on that. So anyway, so it was a great great convention. If you ever get a chance to go to one of your state conventions, whatever your political leanings, um, you should. It really gets you uh, a lot closer to your local um, policymakers. And however your leanings are, you can really make your voice heard. And I think the, the Libertarian Party convention is, for Minnesota is just amazing. They do a great job. People worked on it. did fantastic. And there was super fun karaoke and parties at the end. So you want to meet people, it's a great place to do that. So definitely take a look at coming. So tonight we're going to do a lot of news. And then I have like uh, some fun stuff at the end that we're going to go into. And I got to get going on it because I see like, I, you know, I feel very talky today from Monday. I think it's because spring is in the air. I I hope you all are like not too worried. I know in Minnesota we had like a little snow scare, you know. There's always at least one more snow before the end of of winter and the beginning the real true beginning of spring because I think we only get like 5 days of summer, so we enjoy the heck out of it when we can. So what I'm going to do before we go into the news is I'm going to play an ad or two just cuz I I didn't get to do it in the beginning. I wanted to get right into the intro. But uh, I'm gonna get right back to you, and we're gonna we have a ton of really interesting news today. So I love that you guys are here with me, and I'll be right back. Call in our live number at three one nine five two seven six two zero eight. That's three one nine five two seven six two zero eight. Press one to participate on the air. Leaders, listen up. Do you feel like you can't get a dang thing done because of all the namsy-pamsy crybabies that want you to coddle their creativity? When you give orders, are you met with vacant stares only rivaled by a cocker spaniel? It's not them. It's you. You need to shape up or they'll ship you out. Read the Sniper's Guide to Leadership and you'll become a more effective leader, communicator, and motivator. Forget smart goals and learn swift goals. Get the Sniper's Guide to Leadership in paperback, Kindle, and Nook. Today! 
And we're back for the news for intellectual freedom. And you know how it imp- it's really important to me. I really get excited about uh, making sure that our sen- there's no censorship, book bannings, uh, privacy issues are very important. I, I saw I've been kind of scouring the internet for really good news stories. So I want you to like sit right back and listen to me. And we're going to talk a little bit about why speech matters. Now. You know, Chick-fil-A has not been a very favorably looked at organization. They have extremely delicious chicken sandwiches, so I might be biased, but I like the food. But they have had um, some freedom of speech things come up in the last couple weeks because um, they have Christian owners that have donated to organizations that champion the belief that marriage is between a man or woman, and man and woman. And so however you feel about that, it um, doesn't matter because they're, um, that's their right. They can believe whatever they want because it's America, right? So here's what came up lately. There's the San Antonio City Council recently voted to exclude Chick-fil-A from the city's airport because the restaurant chain's owners have donated to those kind of organizations that champion that belief. And last week, the council narrowly rejected a proposal to reconsider its decision. And the deal with this is such censorship is blatantly unconstitutional. But this incident is is just showing that there's deeper problems than this. People believe that they have absolute truth with regard to issues of morality, sexuality, religion, politics, And anyone who disagrees with you is evil and must be censored or excluded. Uh, This is a problem in our country, especially because we all surround each other ourselves with people who are very similar-minded because it makes us feel better. You know, see, I'm right. I'm still right because, you know, all my friends agree with me. And anyone who disagrees with me, I block them. And that's not that's not the way we should be. We need to be having open discussions. And sometimes, sometimes we're wrong about things and it's good to hear other opinions and at least to to understand that other people have opinions. That's the real world. But people who see, many see people as fragile and they argue that offensive speech is violence. So anything you might be offended by is, is an assault on your senses, on your sensibilities. So because of this, places like San Antonio City Council's fear was that the mere sight of a Chick-fil-A would make LGBTQ plus individuals feel unwelcome. So this corrodes at our free speech foundations. And this kind of idea should be rejected by all those who value the First Amendment. First Amendment protects are any a business owner's right to have different values and opinions. You know, if you don't like it, don't go and spend your money there. Or, you know, maybe you just want to support that people have different viewpoints and they might you might have the same viewpoint. I just think it's okay. We live in a country where we can still say what we feel and, and I think that's just great. Yet the United States we're supposed to be a bastion of free speech. In England, a journalist is under investigation for the crime of misgendering a transgender child. You know, and that's kind of confusing to me too. You can, 
you can make a mistake. You might not know. You might not know the person. You may assume. And the fact that someone says it's a crime is pretty tough. And and there are people that believe that that they don't they don't agree with it. But in other countries, you can't you can't even have the right to disagree. And it's getting to be more and more like that here. It says, in the Grand Chamber of European Court of Human Rights, they refused to review a decision affirming the conviction of an Austrian politician for making inflammatory remarks about the Prophet Muhammad. So, it's just, we have this beautiful right here. It's wonderful. And yet, if we're trying to chip away at this freedom, and it's terrifying to me because... We have a president, President Trump, signed an executive order calling out campuses that flagrantly violate the First Amendment. So here's where I'm going to agree with him. A lot of times he calls people false, like fake news, because they disagree with him. And yet this this is an interesting thing that he did because there's two sides to it. On one side, it sounds great. It's a victory for free speech by invalidating a law that allows government to censor trademarks that are too scandalous for protection. However, it makes it so it's forced. I, I just, I, I, you know, like send me, send me your ideas on this because it, it feels like this is one of those um, bait and switch kind of things. Like, look at this great law where we can. It's like, say, campuses need to be supportive of conservative values. They need to be supportive of other, you know, I'm just thinking of like KKK, how do you say it? Um, But is it because he feels that as a conservative himself that they, they aren't having representatives or is it? trying to make it so he can force campuses to have more and so in a way it isn't um, free speech you know what I mean I, I just have this feeling that there's more to it underneath the surface um, but I do feel that campuses are very liberal so having having multitude of, of different kinds of uh, groups and speakers is just good for campuses so one of the things I've been thinking about with this is um, we do need to protect controversial and sometimes even think ideas that some would consider hateful because we're a society of very soft-hearted souls Um, but you know when I was in high school I was definitely very against war And um, I remember going on a peace march, which, you know, we just wanted people to not go to war for stupid things that we, you know, they didn't have a good explanation why we were going to a war and they shouldn't have a war. Um, And I remember when we were walking, people go, you're an American. You know, having free speech is the most American thing we can do. And for me, being against war was I didn't want to see people my age dying. 
people I love, family members dying. Now, sometimes you just need to be able to say that to people. And I felt like people screaming, that was their right too. But you you can't suppress someone from expressing an opinion. And I think you need to have a safe space where people can say, you know, I'm for this, I'm against this, and not... um, silence their voice by not even letting them speak. And I think that's where I'm going with that. But in this post-war area, um, we have bipartisan consensus in favor of open discourse. Um, so this this is, um, there's three foundational premises for this. First, government bureaucrats are not qualified to decide which ideas deserve protection or which deserve censorship and scorn. We need to hear all ideas. Uh, government abuses during the McCarthy and civil rights era illustrate how much how such power could be used to suppress unpopular viewpoints. We recognize that such power did not belong in the government hands. The Supreme Court expressed this idea with great power in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. And then their quote said, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that hey, no freedom official us. Join me, proof negative. Weeknights, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific, as we fight the new world order together. Right here. Haha, I bumped it. I bumped it. So, proof negative got an ad early. Sorry, dudes. So, I, I was just saying that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what we call what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion. I'm going to pause for my 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 thought process for a second. Um, you know how it is when you get really passionate about something and you're thinking hard and then you lean on the keyboard and you, like, sit forward and you think about it? Um, yeah, these, like, computer studios, you can really hit buttons very easy to start ads and whatnot. So I apologize. I'm new at this. So anyway, back to why Chick-fil-A shows that free speech matters. Um, second, while we can hold um, convictions, very strong convictions on all matter, manner of issues, we should not be so certain of our convictions that we would silence others. I love hearing about other viewpoints. I think it makes for great conversation, and I learn things from people all the time. Instead, we make room even for the expression of ideas that we hate. You may go, I just hate what that person has to say, but you need to let them talk. Um, Persecution, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, persecution for the expression of opinions seemed to be perfectly logical if you have no doubt of your premises or your power. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade and ideas. And I think that's one of the the hearts, the soul of uh, liberty movement. So I'm I'm very glad to protect free speech. The last of the of the three was our commitment for free speech rests on the belief that citizens in a free society are resilient individuals, capable of hearing and rejecting offensive ideas. Just because you hear something that offends you doesn't mean you have to silence it. You can hear it and go, Nope, not gonna do it. Not for me and that's great. As Justice Louis Brandis Brandis explained, 
Those who won our independence by revolution were not cowards. They did not exalt order at the cost of liberty. So I, I believe that we need to really think about equality and fairness for all who remain strong. And there can be people that we just are terrified of, like you know, Nazis marching in Skokie or Charlottesville. But if we stop to enjoy a chicken sandwich at the airport, it can be offensive to people. And, and you know what? We need, we need to have all sorts of viewpoints in our world. And it makes me really scared that we could lose all of that by these tiny little things happening all around our country. And just because it's a small airport kind of thing, the San Antonio leaders should reaffirm their commitment to free speech by stepping back from this ruinous attempt at punishing views they don't like. And I just think about locally, um, one of the universities near where I live, um, they have Chick-fil-A in their student union. And that's where I've had the delicious chicken sandwiches. And I thought about that right when they had opened with all the controversy around them. I was very surprised that they had this there because I thought of all the places where this could be a free speech issue, it didn't happen. And some people boycotted it, and they still are boycotting it. But, you know, they are really tasty sandwiches. So I I think that sometimes you're just hungry and it's just a sandwich is a sandwich. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends with the owners. Um, the people who run it there are college students and people who work locally who are good people. So I I tend to think not a lot about it. But there are people who are more hardcore than I am and they they ban it. You know, they ban it for themselves. And that, that's okay. We live in a country where you can do that. So I support that, and I, and I think that we need to really think about not just getting rid of ideas because they make us uncomfortable. So that's the news about Chick-fil-A. Next up, NSA. Um, ooh. <laughs> this is a really interesting story that's come up just lately. Uh, NSA reportedly recommends retiring the phone surveillance program. Wow. This thing has been going on. National Security Agency had recommended that the White House abandons this controversial program that collects and analyzes data on millions of Americans' domestic phone calls and texts. This was in, I found this article on CNET.com. And, oh, I should mention that last article that I was um, talking about, if you want to read it for yourselves, it's on ExpressNews.com. That's the essay in Chick-fil-A, Shows Why Free Speech Matters, by Daniel Ortner for the Express News. This one is by Stephen Musil um, from CNET. So anyway, um, they talk about the Wall Street Journal reported that NSA wants to get rid of this program. The recommendation against reviewing the program represents a dramatic reversal from the long-standing position of this agency, which had argued that the program was vital to identifying and disrupting terrorist activities, which always kind of felt like BS to me. I just felt like for a long time it was just a snoop on normal people because they wanted to know what we're up to. So this was in place after the 2001 terrorist attacks. And it's been going on for a long time now, 18 years, and has legal and logistical burdens that outweigh its value. So it's a lot of money goes into it. 
and it's a lot of people time, and it's a difficult thing, and there's not a lot of good coming from it. The reported recommendation comes a little more than a month after a national security advisor revealed that the NSA hasn't used the system in months. So we're spending all this money, again, on crap that really isn't being used. And what's good about that is it's not being used. I'm happy. I don't like less invasive privacy stuff that goes on, the better. So they said that they're... Um, at the time, the White House might not seek to renew its legal authority to operate the program, which I'm still suspicious about because I, I think they can just look in at anybody at any time. They'll have them, the technology to do that, but maybe they won't do it to everyone. How cool would that be? So they've been collecting large amounts of this metadata, and if you work in libraries like I do, metadata has all sorts of um, good um, quality information like who you are, where you're located, um, what time, um, you know, things that you might be talking about. So there's there's a lot that they can be using it for. Like if you're near a scene of a crime, they can like figure it out. Um, then that's why they're using it for stopping terrorist activities. But the thing that's terrifying to me was that um, it was, it's very controversial and what they're using it for and how long they keep the information. And um, it's definitely an abuse of privacy. So the information that they said was included in the phone numbers were on the call, when the call was placed, and how long it lasted. That was definitely saved in the databases. I don't know if I totally believe that's it. So uh, this was tied to the Patriot Act programs that intensified in 2013 when former NSA contractor Edward Snowden leaked documents detailing the ways in which the secretive U.S. government government agency was collecting data. So a new system was put in place in 2015 that required federal agencies to seek a court order on a case-by-case -case basis to obtain call data from the telephone company. So they called this the USA Freedom Act 2015 legislation decided to curtail the federal government's sweeping surveillance of millions of American phone records and is set to expire at the end of the year if the Trump administration doesn't ask Congress to renew its authority to continue the program. It's a wasteful program. Uh, you may argue it, it's, it stops terrorism, but I haven't seen any data that really proves that. And I think people who are actually terrorists are probably uh, being smarter about not using some of these uh, techniques like phones and um, they, they'll, they'd find ways of covering their tracks better anyway. So um, this probably isn't catching the terrorists. I'm just saying. So the NSA and the White House didn't immediately respond to the request for the comment. And I think that it could happen. I mean, I'm, I'm really hopeful because I hate wasteful uh, I hate wasting government anyway. You see all those stories about like, you know, $10,000 wrenches and whatnot. Um, and we're being taxed to heck and high water for, for things that make it so the government can spy on us. Let's get rid of that. I'd be okay with that. So I'm hoping that just the fact that it's such a waste of money and time, um, and they have made it even harder to use the information from it, maybe it'll go away. 
and that would be one step to making our, our country a little bit better. I would be very happy for that. So what do you think about that? I think it could be a good thing. I'm going to go switch gears for a little bit. Um, one of the things that I saw, there's an intellectual freedom blog by um, ALA. And I saw an interesting story about self-driving cars. Oh, my goodness. It was always my dream as a kid, first of all, to have a flying car. And then second of all, as an adult, because I go to concerts out of town and always driving back late at night. And I, the older I get, the more early my bedtime is, right? I don't know if I'm the only one. But having a self-driving car, I thought that would be so great. And every once in a while you see crazy stories with the, the, the technologies here now. It could happen. But things go wrong. People get run over. Usually the things that go wrong are because humans are stupid and somebody runs into one of the self-driving cars. So I don't feel like that the technology is bad. I just think that there's a lot of potential for uh, privacy issues, actually. Um, they've made it so they can – Google has a subsidiary called Waymo. Now, Waymo has been at the helm of this new tech for um, – saving lives, mobilizing the blind and the elderly. So their mission sounds cool. They say robots can't drink or drive, get, they don't get distracted. You, you know, robots aren't texting and going, oh, what should I wear to my date tonight? Oh, look, they text me back, and then they run off the road. Um, they don't cause accidents because they're careless or um, eating a cheeseburger, and then they drop a pickle on the floor, and they're trying to pick it up, you know. Accidents happen because humans supposedly are the cause, and they usually are. And they they believe that it will save millions on unwanted unwanted insurance fees, um, reducing thirst for gasoline because people won't be driving fast because the robots will follow the rules of the road. Um, it can help stop pollution. It sounds nice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and so with all technology, the world will not suddenly be inundated with self-driving cars because people love their their cars. We live in a country of people who love making cars, love having hot rods. We have the Fast and the Furious movies. I mean, it's going to be a while before it's going to be an easy thing. What I could see in my future vision is that they could have special roads or lanes for self-driving cars, so you just avoid those um, and people could use it. But what's the problem with it is that um, there's a lot of built-in issues. You know, um, I know our local police would be, I've, I've heard that they, they've been fighting for having laws that say you can't be drunk in the vehicle, even though the robot car and self-driving car is taking you home. They really, really, really want to make it so you can get tickets because, God, can you imagine if we all had robot cars? You know, they can't give you speeding tickets because the robot's not speeding. They can't give you a drunk driving ticket cause, or being impaired because you're sleeping in the back seat. Some robot's taking you home. They want to have control, and they see this as a loss of control. It can be really tough for these organizations to, to understand that maybe that's a, a good thing. Maybe it's good that people aren't going to be fined. Maybe we need less cops. But 
you know, I, I do li- I like the um I like having options. And I do love driving too. So it'll be it will be a hard thing for me to switch. But I could see late at night having a robot drive me while I sleep in the back would be fantastic too. But I don't know that they're gonna make it easy for us to do that. There's gonna be roadblocks for it, literal and figurative. So what's dystopian about this is that inside the cars they want to put cameras, they want to um, listen in on you, and they say it so that way you can just talk to the car. Go, oh, no, let's stop at the store on the way. You know, They want to make it seem like the AI in it is like being helpful to you. But there's a lot of things that you may be talking about that you don't want recorded in your car, that you don't want um, this to be something that's taken away. They've also talked about having it not be um, like you don't have to have car ownership. They want they might make it so it'd be kind of like an Uber that you need to go somewhere. The car just picks you up, and you get you get a fee for you know like the amount of time or the distance that you go. So it could be an equalizer. I can I can see the good side of it because part of me is like oh I want that, but I also I've been reading about it, and you know Google. I, I use Google, you know, but I'm, they're kind of terrifying, right? So they have access to your queries and the results if you use their search engine. So can you imagine this in your car? They want to have fleets of these mobile surveillance vehicles, really, that's what it would be, to record video of everything surrounding the vehicle as well. So, you know, they have cameras on the outside for accidents. But... Is it on? It's on all the time, right? It's on all the time. So, where does this information go? What if it gets tapped into by police? You know, that are looking for individuals on the road. You look suspicious, and they're going to send a, a cop car there to look at you. Um, maybe you don't want to have them know where you are. I mean, maybe you're doing nothing wrong, but you might be just doing your own thing. And they may make things illegal, you know, like I've heard cities talking about having, um, like, closing fast food places because fast food makes you fat, right? So my my dystopian vision of the future is, like, places will open up little pop-up restaurants where they'll have delicious fast food. And the government won't like that because they made it illegal, so they send the police in to go put a stop to your illegal restaurant even though it's what people want. So I worry that they're, like, having cameras everywhere. You know, Big Brother watching all the time because every car will have it. Every car will be having a feed. And who's using that information? So what they talk about in this ALA article that I saw was that Waymo, um, if there's an emergency... Emergency vehicles, they'll record the audio in the car's surroundings so that they have microphones on the outside of the cars, too. They're obligated, if something is a collision, they're obligated to phone the police and roll down the windows or unlock the doors in order to communicate with law enforcement. And so the underlying of all of this apprehension of data is Waymo collects information about you from third parties 
including but not limited to identity verification services and publicly available sources. So imagine experiencing a collision in which you bear no responsibility. Somebody runs into you, but having your information nonetheless available to law enforcement just in case they need it. That's crap. It's total crap. It would be akin to being a passenger during a human-induced accident, but having the cops run a check on your criminal history because you happen to be in the car. So there's nothing that should exist, nothing of your constitutional rights in the description of potential police interactions. So what they're doing is setting this up. So if you know, these self-driving cars take off, that they can look at anything of anyone in these cars if anything happens at all. Any accident, um, something happens to your car, the police can look at everything about you. So what's to stop the police if they want to find out about someone in a car having, like, setting up little accidents? I mean, they're not going to, right? Right? But the suspicious part of me is that they could abuse this easily. They could They could set it up so things could happen. And I, I just see the potential for abuse is so strong if you had a corrupt police officer, which never happens, right? But um, they need to make sure that this is something that isn't going on. People need to be very afraid of it. So this is supposedly to be the safe operation of AI vehicles. Um, this smacks of, a more, of more moving parts, making it more complicated is naive to think that the te- technology is a panacea for all the ails success for the society. You can never remove the human element from anything that humans create. So make it so robots drive the cars, the humans have to be more involved somehow. We can't make it just something that's easy. You know, it has to be complicated. And you know, to say, pump the brakes. Your expectation of privacy is lowest when out of doors. So but when will all this occur? It may be true, but Google has taken um, the approach Google has taken is gross exploitation of our current privacy regulations. They're changing the game, and our expectation of privacy needs to adapt alongside this assumption that our acquiescence to their unparalleled reach for control needs to be. We need to really put the brakes on it. So. In addition to privacy, we should be concerned about human autonomy. Uh, By accepting the trajectory of the technology, we're handing over the wheel to a company that profits off of privacy violations. You know, if I think that Google needs to have a policy that protects our privacy. There needs to be something that shows that they won't be handing this information over to the police. They need to be a little bit more... um, I know they work very closely with them, um, you know, with phone records. So this is the same kind of thing. And I'm hoping that there gets to be more and more um, competition, which may make it so this happens. But this Google's the biggest, and we need to really look at the radar of um, autonomous vehicles. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, Since 2004, when the agency initiated the Grand Challenge, a contest that pitted tech-savvy teams against one another in order to crown a champion of self-driving cars, operating in a wild landscape, off-road, whatever, followed three years later was the Urban Challenge, 
with millions of dollars at stake, this branch of military incentivized teams to make self-driving cars that could safely navigate the treacherous areas of a busy city. So they're continuing their continuation of a narrative that has been active since the 1960s, DARPA, its academic cohorts, nurtured the types of technology that promised to enact behavioral prediction and societal control. So, yeah, this is my tinfoil hat on now. Um, they're kind of trying to predict where we're going. They're trying to control where we're going. They're trying to watch where we're going and listen to where we're going all the time and tying this to our own police forces. Now, I love the idea of self-driving cars, but when it comes to that, that is terrifying. And we need to be very cautious and listen into the future about being careful and making sure that we have advocates that are out there um, making sure that there's not a militarized technology that's going into something that seems so, like, calm and inviting, you know? Because who doesn't want a self-driving car? That would be so cool. We live in the future. But at what cost? And I'd really like to see some more um, smaller companies enter the picture so they have more privacy rights. And if you have options, you could go towards that. So I'm still hopeful that maybe we don't have to go down this militarized uh privacy invading way but at this point it's not going to happen so be very cautious of your self-driving cars it could be cool it could be great but at what cost okay now i'm going to take off my tinfoil hat but we're going to talk a little bit about a teacher and school issues okay a little sip of water okay kids so there was an article. This is really interesting. Uh, a teacher accuses high school of a free speech censorship. They wrote an article. A California high school English teacher um, accused the administrators because they wrote an article which chronicled a student's journey into the adult entertainment industry. Now, this is high school, right? This is an award-winning article. Um, Kathy Duffel an English teacher at Fair Creek High School in Stockton, California, an advisor for the Bruin, Vo- Bruin, Bruin Voice, accused the school of attempting to squelch the voice of the paper because this um, they talked about you know how this high school student um, went into the adult industry. And it's uncomfortable, but it's real. Now, the only message they're sending to students is that they don't like what you write and they will censor it. So these, this is um, the English teacher was the advisor, and from what I understand, it, students helped to write it. So I'm fighting not just for my job because they're looking at firing this person, but for my students' rights to free speech. Nothing is more important to me. So the Lodi Unified High School District, Unified School District, told Newsweek magazine that is reporting this that it supports its students' freedom of speech rights and denied that it censored or stopped the publication of the paper of any of, of, of the paper or of any article in it. That doesn't sound true because when the Bruin Voices Bailey Kirkby contacted the student, Duffel said she was enthusiastic about having the chance to set the record straight and dismiss rumors and assumptions her peers made about her. The paper's goal, by shining light on her journey, has, as described by Duffel, help students see the reality 
risks, dangers, and unglamorous side of the adult entertainment industry. So at its heart, the article was really about stopping people from going into it because this student um, who was interviewed went through it. And what makes the adults that work at the school uncomfortable is the thought that an underage student went through this. And we should be uncomfortable that an underage student did this, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It means that it totally did happen, and we want students to talk to each other about it so that way, it, you know, you don't get sucked into it. You don't have students that are uh, abused, that are um, tricked into going into these because they think they're going to get famous. So I thought that um, from what I read that it's uh, very humanizing of the subject. So a lot of teenage boys, um, porn is so easy to get on the Internet, right? Like you have Pornhub and all of these other sites. So these little teenage boys are clicking on sites. Um, and I think this is good for men in general and for people in general is to think about the fact that um, the people in these videos are human beings. And a lot of them are people that were possibly underage and they lie about it and they abuse these people and they throw them away like garbage. So maybe it is a good thing to have a newspaper, a student newspaper, talk about that because um, I know even in this town that I live in, there was a semi-famous um, college student who um, went into the porn industry and was a big name porn guy and won adult awards. And I think I even remember he had worked at a sandwich shop in my town and I remember seeing him. And people later on in articles talked about how he, while he was a college student, he went into this industry. And some would say that's his right. He's, he's an adult. And I'm like, yep, he's an adult. But a high school student isn't an adult. And a lot of girls especially um, get pulled into this industry, especially if you live out in California. It's it's everywhere there. So and but it's out in the Midwest too. So I feel like um, stopping students from talking about what's actually happening to them is not doing them any good. So um, the superintendent on April 11th said um, Duffel was informed that she didn't provide the school with a copy of the article. She could be disciplined and even dismissed. If she didn't comply the litig and litigation arose from the article, she could be personally liable for any cost and damages. And this teacher said, I uphold the highest standards of professional journalism, and instead of being lauded for doing my job well, uh, she finds herself continually threatened with intimidation. So instead of providing the school with a copy to review, Duffel said an independent attorney will be charged with the task and claim the story is on solid legal footing. The district um, agreed to meet on April 18th, the school district told Newsweek. So in addition, um, this teacher acknowledged that district's concerns raised something interesting, some interesting points and that students have more work to do. Regardless of action taken by Mrs. Duffel, the district remains committed to the agreed upon process. So the edition of the paper containing the article is scheduled to be released on May 3rd, and they're they're fighting to make it happen. And so this teacher intends to submit the article to the National Scholastic Press's Association Story of the Year contest because she feels it's that good. Now, even if you agree or disagree about it, because it's kids, and I know um, when I've studied uh, 
mass communication law that um, the problem with this is probably because it's underage people. But I do think it's a very interesting story, and I haven't read the story since they're reviewing it, but from what they've said, it sounds like the, the outcome is trying to talk people out of going into the industry. So I'm hopeful that they will at least see that. And um, they have to be very careful about privacy issues for minors who are involved in things that are like criminal activity. Um, well, I'm hopeful to see um, that this this comes out, that the, the article will be released. What they'll probably do is end up having to edit it in some way because when you have the children, um, they have very little rights. But the adult um, supervisor, um, the editor, this English teacher, she is the one that's looking out for them. So I'm guessing that it's pretty legitimate and there's a lot of thought that went into it. So this is the kind of thing you see all the time in high schools where um, an administrator says, no, you're not putting this article out. And there are a lot of students that have heartache because it's they're they're writing from their heart. They're writing things that really matter to them. And I hope that the school district doesn't crush this because it sounds like it could be a very good article and it could have some effect on people and students as well. So students are people. Huh. So students are people. And I'm hoping that they, uh, they kind of push this back into that. And the, but since it's gone national, that maybe this will have an effect on their outcome. Fingers crossed. So another high school story. I don't know why all of these high school stories come out at the same time. I thought this was pretty dang funny. Houston High School wants to have a dress code for parents, and there was pushback because um, the letter went out to parents. This is kind of hilarious to me because you always hear about people getting mad about dress codes for their students, like the ones I think about are when they talk about skirt length and, you know, like wearing leggings with pants and that kind of thing, and people are like, come on, this is like sexualizing children and that kind of thing. But however you feel about it, um, they're kids, so it could go one way or the other, and there's less rights as underage people again. But this time, it's the parents, right? So this letter that went out April 9th this month says, Dear Madison parents and all guests, people that come to visit the school, right, um, to prepare our children and let them grow, da- let them know daily the appropriate attire that they are supposed to wear when entering the building, going somewhere, applying for a job, or visiting someone outside the home setting. I am going to enforce these guidelines on a daily basis for visitors at the school. Um, no one can enter the building or be on the school premises wearing a satin cap or bonnet on their head for any reason in the building. You cannot wear a shower cap of any kind in the building. They don't want hair rollers, pajamas. You know how parents sometimes are. They're dropping off the kids at school or they, somebody gets sick and they got to run in and get them. Um, attire that could be possibly pajamas, underwear, or, or home setting wear, such as flannel pajamas. They don't want it. Jeans that are torn from your buttocks behind to all the way down, showing lots of skin will not be permitted in the building or premises. Leggings that are showing your bottom, you know, like yoga pants, where your body's not covered from the front or the back or will not be 
whatever. They they keep going. Very low cut tops, revealing tops. You can see breasts. It's mostly women in this. Um, sagging pants, shorts, jeans, you know, like the low riding pants. Men wearing undershirts will not be permitted, you know, what they call wife beaters. Um, short shorts that are up to your behind will not be permitted. Daisy dupes, low riders. Man, the rules just keep going. Dresses are up to your behind, really short dresses. So nothing sexy, nothing grungy, you know. So the problem with this, first of all, it's it's the parents, not the students. Um, it's drawing local and national pushback because some say it's racist and classist, you know. They can't be on campus if they're wearing halters or hair rollers or whatever. So in the memo, they said that if the parents break the rules, they'll not be permitted inside the building until they return appropriately dressed for the school setting. But we do value you in your children's education to the parents, this principal wrote. However, please know we have to have standards because we all must have high standards. So they say this discriminates against women of color who use caps and rollers to protect their hair. That um, it, was, it did seem anti-black. Um, and this is uh, mentioned by a university professor who's also an activist and successfully campaigned against this major, a major textbook company after Sun showed her his book calling Slaves Immigrants. So they said this. Part, this kind of dress code is a long history of policing black women's hair and that the dress code for parents doesn't have any connection to instruction and discourages parents from coming to school because you got to look like you're going to work. So, I mean, if you got to run in out of the blue, do you have time to go run and go change your clothes because you're not, quote, unquote, being appropriate? It seems like it's just another kind of control thing that's going on. So we want parents in our schools helping, supporting, and being part of the educational team. And this is directly going against that. We want those relationships with parents to be positive and, I think, putting out a policy that only erodes that relationship between parents and schools, stops people from wanting to come in and be a part of their kids' education. You know, another thing that's going to push people to, like, leave the public school systems and go to homeschool because this is really crazy pants. And who wants their kids to be in a place like that? They say, we disagree with the decision. Let's see, who is this? Um, The Houston Federation of Teachers. Um, They say, it's sometimes not what you say, but how you say it. We disagree with the decision to not enroll a student based on the dress of a parent. The implementation of such a policy would have been better, and it should have been handled differently. So even the teachers there are against it. So hopefully we'll see that get reversed because it's sort of ridiculous. I I think that trying to control people who don't even go to that school and who are adults who have rights uh, is ridiculous and should be put a stop. Okay, so let's see how are we doing on time. I'm going to take a little break um, and play an ad, and then we'll come right back, and I have a couple more news stories, and I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones. Dun, 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 dun. So I'll be right back. If I can figure out how to get the ads to come right back. There we go. It's Sunday night. What are you planning to do? Watch an award show? 
I want to thank the Academy for this opportunity to make a political statement that everybody's going to applaud me for because I'm a celebrity. Watch a game, maybe. I want to say I'm grateful for this win because now I can make a political statement that everybody's going to applaud me for because I'm a celebrity. I've got it. How about a talk show? I realize I haven't said anything funny all season, but hey, at least I can make a nightly political statement that everybody's going to applaud me for because I'm a celebrity. Time for a change, isn't it? Tune in to Counterculture Wise Radio every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Pacific on FreedomizerRadio.com. Good news, great advice, and entertaining interviews you won't hear anywhere else. Counterculture Wise Radio. Radio with heart in mind. Heart in mind. Wonderful. And they are so cool. I love those guys. So we got a little bit more news to cover, and then I want to talk about some fun stuff. There's just so much news this week. I had a hard time going through and cutting things out because I really, there's a lot going on. I don't know if it's spring and just a lot of rights that are being intruded upon, but um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that um, a lot of us, we work, we work for businesses that have um, workplace wellness programs. And I, you know, like if you work for the state, they kind of, they give you incentive to uh, be a part of it by um, reducing your, uh, like your cost. So if you go per time, you go to the doctor, you know, you do this and they um, you fill it out and they'll go, you'll save $5 each time you go. So all of us love saving money, so we do it. But I read a little bit about this today. And that 82% of the larger companies, those with 200 employees or more, and 53% of the smaller ones offered some type of wellness program. Now, it's part of a annual survey of workplace benefits. Some of them, um, workplace wellness is growing in our country and around the world. And workplace wellness has an, is an $8 billion industry. Think about that. They they want to make money, and it's tied into our health insurance plans a lot of times. So having access to wellness program at work, one that may help you lose weight, get in shape, quit smoking, or otherwise improve your health, sounds like a great thing, right? Um, especially with these financial enticements, such as like sometimes they give you gift cards or um, they'll give you a fitness tracker or cash or, you know, there's lots of incentive to just be a part of it. of large firms with wellness programs offered employees a financial enticement to participate in or complete the program. So even where I worked, if you filled this in, you would get money off of your uh, per-visit costs, which sounds great. So sometimes they have lunchtime walking groups and on-site exercise or nutrition classes, Um, getting free fitness trackers that um, gets records information such as daily steps or hours of sleep. And um, some of them have more. So to do this, a lot of times they have health questionnaires that ask about your lifestyle habits, physical, mental health, reproductive plans, family medical history. They can offer you screenings to measure your blood pressure, blood sugar, body mass index, and cholesterol. Some, this is terrifying, some even feature genetic testing. Whoa, now it's getting super crazy. But are these Get Healthier programs to be to be Good for you, or are they 
too good to be true? The answer isn't so simple. Research on their ability to improve well-being has mixed results over the years. And participating often means sharing personal health information, such as having to meet specific health or fitness goals with your employer. Um, different kinds of wellness programs um, kind of go against privacy laws for different ones. It's very complex. So um, Dina Mendelson, a senior policy counselor for Consumer Reports, says that because of the wide variety of types and operators of wellness programs, the application of these laws is spotty and inconsistent, rendering them inadequate. One potential problem with wellness programs is they can create an atmosphere in which certain health behaviors or levels of physical performance are expected. Employees with disabilities or other reasons for not participating might feel discriminated against or not welcome. So she notes that if you can't lose enough weight to achieve a program's desired BMI goal or you're just too busy to walk 10,000 steps a day, you could feel like you're not the kind of employee the company wants. So that part is more feelings, you know. But what if it comes down to, like, they start pressuring you or, like, you, you get awards if you do this and you aren't getting the awards. They They notice that stuff. So you could get punished in weird ways. I, I think that most of the time there's good intentions with these programs, but um, is it really good? Consumer Reports is currently sponsoring a bill in California called AB 648, calling for clear privacy protections, limiting the collection of personal information and prohibiting its sharing, for instance, for instance, and other safeguards, such as forbidding employers from requiring participation in wellness programs, because it seems like... You have to be healthy in the way that we want you to be healthy. You know, no smoking. You have to eat healthy because healthy workers never miss work. You know, there's some incentive to them to have it. So privacy is very important. Our goal is to make sure privacy rights are consistent across all programs and to increase transparency so that employees know what data is being collected, says Mendelssohn. If workers choose to participate in a wellness program, they should be able to do so without giving up their right to have choices, basically. Before you join a workplace wellness program, it's important to consider the, the following. How do the privacy laws for the workplace wellness programs work? Read the fine print. Um, many times they're run by the health insurance plan, but some companies hire outside vendors uh, that set up and oversee their offerings. So they may have different ways they approach privacy. Um, if it's run through your health insurance company, known as HIPAA, um, privacy rules apply. But if it's a private company, it could be totally different. Your company is self-insured, common for larger workplaces, and offers a wellness program through self-administered health plan. It's also subject to HIPAA rules. One exception, if the plan is less than 50 participants, they can do whatever they want. But if the program is run by an outside vendor, the rules do not apply for HIPAA. Independent wellness vendors, um, they, they shouldn't share your health data, but it doesn't mean they can't. So if an independent vendor is running your company's wellness program, you should really think about if you should be a part of that. A vendor can legally share or sell your data, sell your data to advertisers or other companies. That is the most terrifying thing. I never even knew that was possible. That's why I'm sharing it with you today. So if you note in your health, qu health questionnaire that you're trying to get pregnant, 
you may start receiving pop-up ads or emails for products like ovulation prediction kits. This is legal, but it might feel like an invasion of privacy for some. So what I worry about is then you may say that, are they going to share that with your, your boss or with your employer? What Could you be left out of promotions because they find out that you're trying to, you know, as a woman? Because you might be gone. You know, or if there's something about cancer, you know, oh, they, they're sick. They might be sick. You know, we don't want to promote someone that might be out. You know, they could be judging for so many reasons, mental health issues. So you you ne- definitely need to at least look at the fine print, see, see who's running that if you're going to be a part of it. Um, be wary at least because there it, these rules change all the time and they can start sharing with companies. See, employer wellness programs, um, if you felt uncomfortable about it, um, have, you, have, have you been asked questions you didn't want to answer? Or have you felt required to participate? Um, if you feel like this, trust those instincts. It's very odd that they would make you do it. These should all be very optional things. Um, one of the things is uh, ran- if people are randomly assigned either to a wellness program or not, can give you, they don't even know if they're effective. There was a couple of studies, including the Harvard Medical School published in JAMA, which looked at almost 33,000 employees at BJ's Wholesale Club for 18 months, where it found that in workplaces with a wellness program, 8.3% more employees reported exercising regularly, and 13%, 13 13.6% more said they were actively managing their weight but the research didn't find any positive effects on health measurements like blood glucose or blood pressure, spending on healthcare, or absenteeism rates, which is the big underline. Um, it sounds good, like, yay, they're doing more health things, but it didn't make any difference. So uh, I guess I feel like it, it's a nice thing. If you want to be a part of it, Go ahead, but please at least read the fine print. Make sure that they're not abusing your data. And honestly, having a program like this, they're not really helping you get healthier according to the data that they found. Um, Financial incentives, so they're basically paying you to do it. It's a motivating behavior to get people to be a part of it. But some experts say that connecting such program to discounts on insurance muddies the water of what's truly voluntary. If employees want to participate and share their health information, that is, a, it has to be free, not coerced. And if they're make they're making it cheaper for you to go to the doctor, it's definitely coerced. The penalty for not participating is that your health insurance premiums will be higher. Um, employees may feel like they have to share their health information in order to save money, because money's tight for everyone, right? So what should you do? So, yeah, that depends. Um, what are you hoping to achieve? Take advantage of activity-based offerings like work site, site ex, exercise classes. That's cool. Healthy eating talks, if they have any. Um, but if you're signing up for programs that involve sharing detailed health information, doing genetic testing, dear gosh, think think about it first. Um, make sure it's covered by HIPAA, and that not not just covered that it's not just HIPAA compliant. The latter is just a way of working around it. It needs to have privacy protection. And I worry for all of you that you are just giving your information away. Um, 
be cautious about programs that are competitive, like workplace biggest loser type offerings, um, pure incentive programs, like like they give you prizes, whatever, um, pay you to lose weight. Money can get your attention. But there's not a lot of research on how it works long term to get people to lose weight, quit smoking, manage stress, being healthy. So it's reasonable to check the program's privacy policies too. So before you ever sign up for anything, look at that. Please, please, please. Because the goals and recommendations of a wellness program may not align with your personal health care decisions. Um, but if it's something that you're being asked to achieve in your workplace wellness program, if it's unhealthy in your doctor's opinion, you shouldn't be required to do it. Wellness programs should never replace or supersede your doctor's advice. So be thoughtful, please, please, please. Okay. So I think that's all I'm going to do for the news. I've been talking a lot. Um, one thing I want to talk about is more fun stuff, okay? So I went this weekend to that conference, the convention, and then on Friday I went to a library conference at uh, Minnesota Arboretum, which is wonderful. Errol D. Day is a um, nice academic research library division uh one that I used to be on the board like years and years ago. It's super fun to go and you learn about things that are new trends in academic libraries. And one of the sessions I went to there, we talked about um, data privacy, which I'm like, wow, it's like it's made for me. And being careful and cautious about protecting patrons' rights uh, for data privacy and not um, jumping into Google Analytics, which um, definitely is like handing over our patrons' data to a company which is making money off of us. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because they use it because it's free and easy to use and it's like everyone loves Google. But it was really great for the keynote to, to mention that, and I thought that was cool. So then I went to this um, Libertarian Conference where we, I presented, and that's always a blast. I love talking to people. And then Sunday... Sunday, 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 my buddy uh, has a um, Game of Thrones viewing party. And now I'm not going to ruin Game of Thrones for you, but telling you all the secrets, like when Godzilla came and, no, Godzilla didn't come. Um, but what I was thinking about was that as much as I, I love nerdy things, and in Game of Thrones, I'm really going to be sad to see it end. There's only three episodes left. And one of the funny things is that you go on Facebook and anytime you have Game of Thrones back, there's always like a bunch of people that love to brag about how they don't watch Game of Thrones. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? You, you, you have to brag about it. It's like my friend Laura talks about yucking someone's yum. And, you know, if somebody loves, you know, their, their shows, their music, and they tell you how great it is, the first thing you shouldn't do is to jump on to uh, social media and go, oh, that just sucks. Why would anybody watch that show? Boobs and blood. Well, that's all it is. And maybe it is. Maybe I like boobs and blood. Whatever. But just seeing that over and over again, um, one of my friends posted, it was a great, I should find it for putting up notes, um, like, you know, how people, if they're vegan or they're doing CrossFit, that's all they can talk about. Um, not watching Game of Thrones is being the new vegan, whatever. I like vegan. I like I like vegetables a lot. But I think that, yeah, people talk about their 
passions a little too much and saying, well, you should you should do CrossFit. That, that'll solve all your problems. And you're like, I don't know, maybe not for me. I got bad knees and whatever. Like, it will. So, yeah, and then every time you see them, they always talk about it. Like, I love Game of Thrones, but I'm not going around talking every day to everybody because I – it's amazing how many people don't watch the same shows I do. I mean, if you do, and I'm like, oh, we are a common family now. We watch the same nerdy crap, and I love it. But So we watch the Game of Thrones, and we get together, and we try to watch all these episodes since it's the last ones, and we're all going to cry when it's over because what are we going to watch next? I don't know. But... um I went to this libertarian conference convention and I, you know, I had libertarian on the brain. So one of the things I was thinking about is what are the libertarian themes of Game of Thrones? And I may be totally wrong on this, so whatever. And I looked up and I found an article that said in reason.com, five libertarian lessons in HBO's Game of Thrones, which I think that's so cool. So they say, number one is the rule of law is more important than brute force for social order. So Westeros, that's the place that Game of Thrones is in, um, the right to rule and the force needed to exercise that right is is a big part of the show. So uh, like a king, Robert Brathian dies, um, it can lead to several seasons of everyone else like trying to jockey into place that could get the Iron Throne. That That's like the whole theme of the whole entire series, right? We're on season eight now. And different people get in, you know, you have like all the, you know, I, I mean, how, my problem is like, okay, with spoilers, like how far back is a spoiler? Some people say that like you, if you're a super fan, you need to be like watching it the week that the show comes out for a TV show. For movie, it's like a month. Is this right? I'm not going to spoil it for you no matter what. But, like, if you're thinking about watching Game of Thrones and it's been, like, eight seasons and I say something about the first season, does that make me a spoiler person? I don't know. But sometimes you want to talk about it, right? So I digress. But anyway, so Iron Throne is this um, big weirdo chair that's um, in the King's Landing where they have all the the swords that are attached to it. Crazy looking. So, you know, all these people are like taken over and then they die and someone else takes over and then die and then someone else tries to take over and then they kill everyone else because they don't want to lose it. Uh, People are burning their children to make it so they can have it. Um, There's a lot of weird stuff and there's all these religions that are tied into it and it's kind of amazing. But the rule of law is more important than brute force in for social order. So all of them seem to like to abuse power once they get it. And I think it's kind of a warning about our own society. So tormenting people and uh, obscuring the truth um, is not a way to to stay in power because the cycle of the world, it seems to be the true moral of the story, is that when... Good rules are disregarded, disorder and ruin follows. So the best way to have society is to have fair rules or get rid of unfair rules because the minute you start making people uncomfortable, um, taking away the rights, overtaxing them, 
um, chaos happens. That's a pretty libertarian thought. Um, debt is ruin. Um, if you pay the bills, you call the shots. In Game of Thrones, a Lannister always pays his debt, is the unofficial motto of House Lannister. Um, it shows that having money gives you power. So the Iron Throne is in the hands of the Baratheons. The Lannisters have the money, and so that's why the power starts shifting to them. So it's it's owing money. I just thought that was interesting. The government of the Seven Kingdoms doesn't operate within and eventually turns to the Iron Bank of Bravos for funding. So I always felt like the Iron Bank was actually the one that rules it all because they got all the money. But, you know, this last season, I kind of wonder if we're going to see more of that, like the money coming back into it. We will see. So Stannis Baratheon was backed by um, the Iron Bank in season four. And the real threat is actually money. So the, if you're too poor to get um, backed by a bank, you will have no power. So you, there's risk and assessment of risk in that, but debt is ruined. That was number two. Government is theft. This is my favorite in this. Um, the significant debt of the government of the Seven Kingdoms, so um, King's Landing, the Lannisters, owed so much money to the Iron Bank. Um, the government relies relies on the king's men to loot and pillage the populace. It claims to govern. The government's reliance on this, that it can pilfer from kingdoms, made it clear um, that the, if you don't have a royal army, the king is weak. Each of the kingdoms need to submit men to the army. That was what Joffrey did. Um, they had marauders using their royal backing to take what they want and push through the country. Contemporary governments offer more services than the government of Westeros, but the relationship between property of the governed and the needs of the government are quite similar to Westeros. What the government needs, it takes. And that's why taxation is theft, kids. And you see that a lot in Game of Thrones, that the king's men may not terrorize America's streets, but it's easy to see the parallel between that kind of pilfering and actions like asset forfeiture and even the use of eminent domain to enrich interests connected to government officials. So I think there's a lot of meaning in Game of Thrones where you can see them taking things away from the people. Oh, Lord, I'm running out of time. I could talk and talk to you guys. I should have got a three-hour show. So tight borders, um, having the Night's Watch in the wall. So like what they want to do with Mexico and stopping the um, the wildlings. Wildlings are the free people. That's what we should all like kind of aspire to. But because they had a wall up, they didn't um, let people go between the, the the areas. It made it so there's no mutually beneficial economic um, relations. So having free markets is a good thing, right? So last, team loyalty in politics is dangerous. You know being just a Democrat, being just a Republican and not um, being just a Libertarian and not listening to what candidates have um, to offer and is, is their name good, is their word good, is not good for people. So just being a Lannister, just being um, in any family or in, in Game of Thrones or political house is not in our best interest. You need to look at the people. So 
that's all I've got to say for today is I love Game of Thrones. I hope if you guys do too, you're watching along next week. I probably won't talk about it, but I'm going to have see about having some candidates and some uh, different interviews for it next week. Less, less of me talking. And next, your show is proof negative. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you next week. I love you guys. Have the best week ever. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.